Marvel's mutant heroes return to save the day when villains force a remarkable student to put his family before his team. A thrilling new episode of Mutant Adventure featuring the next generation of Marvel's X-Men. Welcome to the X-Wife Podcast. I'm Alicia. And I'm Justin. And today we are joined by Robbie McNiven, the author of First Team. Welcome to the show, Robbie. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's really awesome to be on. Looking forward to uh, having a bit of a chat and uh, seeing where things go. Absolutely, yeah. We are too. Yeah, we really enjoyed the book. We, we've been talking about it the last couple of days, getting ready and just going over our notes and just uh, just just loving this deeper dive into Marvel characters, X-Men characters specifically. So for all of our listeners, this is the second book in the Marvel's Xavier's Institute uh, series. It's called First Team, and it takes a look at some of the characters in outside of comic form, which most of you know I love a good book. So um, we were really excited to dive in, and we're really excited to talk to Robbie. So we're going to be doing uh, two parts. Well, one episode, but halfway through, we're going to get into the spoilery section. Um, So when we get to that part, if you haven't yet read the book, we suggest that you hit pause on your podcast player of choice, go read the book, and then come back and uh, get some more inside information on those spoilery details. Um, All right. Without any further ado, let's Let's do it. Let's dive in. Hey, hey, Robbie. So uh, we just wanted to start with just who are you and and a little bit about your backstory as an author. Uh, Good question. so yeah, I'm. Uh, I write mostly sci-fi and fantasy. Um, I've been writing full time, more or less, for about five years now. Uh, I kind of came through the ranks via uh, Black Library. So uh, the guys that do Warhammer and Warhammer Forty Thousand little models. Uh, so they have a, a fiction imprint. So they write or have Italian fiction that uh, I ended up writing for, luckily. Uh, and then for the past oh, just about two years now, I've been branching out a bit. Uh, writing with other publishers, writing in different sort of IP, intellectual property settings. And one of them happens to be uh, my first Marvel novel, first team. So uh, that's what brings me on, really. That's cool how you kind of came in through tie-ins, but now are working in a different kind of tie-in. Yeah. So what you said, sci-fi, what is your like sci-fi niche? Yes, I mean, when I was writing sort of uh, for Warhammer, it was mostly military sci-fi, right? Because that's, you know, their brand. It's very, like, conflict-based. Um, but since then, yeah, I've been kind of branching out. Most of most of the stuff was sci-fi, so not much fantasy. Um, but I have recently written uh, for the same publisher that's producing the, the Marvel books, um, Aconite. They also do a bunch of fantasy ranges, different settings. Uh, so I've written for them as well. I don't know, I just kind of try and keep it broad. Um, this is a bit of a departure in so much as it's, well, it's literally superheroes. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really fit into sci-fi or fantasy, um, but it's kind of, you know, fantastical. Uh, and it's a lot of fun to play with. So, yeah, I guess I'm just kind of seeing how I can develop uh, my writing and going with the flow. Awesome. So uh, how and when did you first become an X-Men fan? Ooh. Um, well, I mean, probably it's difficult to say the exact time. It was when I was growing up, so the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to watch the cartoon series. Of course. You know, apparently everybody did. There's <laughs> an X-Men fan that didn't uh, in the 90s. 
So that was kind of my gateway to it. I didn't really have like a local comic book store. Um, I grew up in a village in the Highlands. So like, you know, there wasn't a comic book store, sadly. So I didn't really properly start appreciating the comics until I began looking at writing this. Um, obviously, I watched all the Hollywood films, you know, Big Fan of All the X-Men via that. But in terms of like the, the core lore, the background that comes from the actual original comics, uh, that was something I didn't really appreciate until, yeah, I started doing my research and I realized I was going to get to write this. Um, tried to kind of broaden my knowledge base, looked at stuff that wasn't just the sort of classic Earth 616, but you know, tried to just absorb as much as I could, um, especially when it comes to the characters, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, so yeah, the origin was that cartoon series, uh, and then it's just kind of been been branching out ever since then. It's funny, it's kind of similar to Alicia's origin into it. She had never read any comics before we started the show. Nope. And it has been my duty to educate her on the, the wide world of X-Men comics. And yeah. uh, we, we talked to Julian Eric Leewald's uh, who are two of the creators and writers on the X-Men animated TV show and just getting to nerd out and, and really identify wow. the fact that, you know, everybody watched that show. That was yeah. a lot of people's gateway. That was my gateway too. And, oh, good. Yeah. I don't feel too bad now then, you know, I'm not a purist in terms no. of the original like comics. Um, but yeah, it, it was a great, awesome show. Like it kind of defined the X-Men for a generation, I think. Yeah. And I feel like that's really what we're trying to do is not have that gatekeeping, you know, not, not, keep anybody out of the fandom just because of how they got into it. However you came to the X-Men, your fandom is valid. Yeah. You just have more to read and that's great. Yeah. Exactly. It's just endless amounts of things to read. So, so you're never bored. Either through the, the comics that you've read recently, the, the shows that you read kind of back in the day, the movies that you've seen, do you have any favorite X-Men, favorite characters that have stuck out to you? Oh, that's tough. I do really like uh, X-23, Laura, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's badass, like really badass. Yeah, like is. it's kind of like, a, it feels like an opt-out to be like, I like Wolverine because, you know, everyone likes Wolverine. Um, but she's like got her own thing going on. And I think from what I've read, which is, you know, not a huge amount, but uh, recently she's really kind of like coming out as like a leader, like leadership role in the comics that she's featured in. Um, so, you know, if I ever got to write a story about her, that'd be pretty awesome. Uh, but obviously I have a soft spot as well for the characters in the first team because, uh, yes. you know, that's that's what I've got to write. And uh, it's, like I said, I did a fair bit of research on them. So I feel as though I'm fond of those characters, definitely. What was the experience like to get this opportunity? Like, how did the opportunity of writing this book come about for you? <laughs> Basically, uh, I discovered that the publisher I was writing for, Aconite, uh, were going to get the, the Marvel franchise, you know, the rights to produce books. Uh, for Marvel and for the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the secret was, I asked them a lot whether they would let me write an X-Men book <laughs> until eventually they were like, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it was basically as simple as that, you know? I feel as though every single author that works for them probably, you know, begged for a, a slot with uh, one of the Marvel sort of substrands they've, they've got going on now. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get, uh, land the gig of one of the Xavier's Institute books um, after Carrie, who... Uh, Carrie Harris has been really sort of amazing. She's like a really long-term X-Men fan. And, uh, you know, she's really into the lore and kind of helped me out in the early stages, uh, just chatting about stuff, more or less. But yeah, it was just a case of pleading with a publisher. And uh, I submitted a lot of pictures, uh, so different story ideas. Um, I think a dozen, maybe, uh, with, you know, all sorts of different characters, not just the X-Men, but different sort of Marvel 
uh, characters as well. And some of them got quite far and then they were like, ah, maybe not. And then eventually it was this one that uh, ultimately broke through and uh, maybe they just got tired of me asking. But yeah, I got there in the end. Yeah, this one works, just go. Persistence pays off, persistence pays off. Exactly. So what now, you, you talked about a, a handful of pitches, but what, what drew you in to this story and made you choose these three main characters? Yeah, I think the key in terms of choosing the other characters was um, an old having him as the main focus. Once I decided on him, the other ones kind of flowed naturally. Uh, so Rock Slides is an old sort of bestie uh, in the comics. Grey Malkin, he has like a quite strong relationship with uh, sharing you know, some really poignant moments in, in the comic books. Um, Cypher is sort of less uh, directly involved with uh, Anol in the background, but she's, she's still kind of there. So yeah, it's kind of Anol was the key. As to why I went with him, bearing in mind this is about a year ago now, uh, <laughs> I'm not entirely certain. It was, you know, there was a big, it was all just kind of a blur looking back because the options were sort of vast in terms of, I knew it was going to be a Xavier's Institute book. And then basically any of the Xavier's Institute student characters were up for grabs, more or less. And, you know, there's probably a hundred at least of them. So th that was the options I had initially. And I just kind of just plowed through loads of different ones, just trying to come up with ideas. And I don't know, something about an all kind of stuck. Um, I think initially I quite liked that he was a fairly kind of happy-go-lucky character. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he has very serious moments, but he doesn't take life too seriously necessarily, uh, which is, is quite enjoyable to write. Uh, and yeah, beyond that, I began to discover a lot of different nuances uh, with the character as I developed pitch ideas for him. And yeah, it just kind of stuck. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, so talking about the fact that there's all these characters to choose from, what kind of freedom were you given with this book to either stay with certain comics and like the storylines within the comics or to be able to go your own way because there are elements in the story that are somewhat true to the comics or inspired by the comics but sort of shift in their own direction so were there a lot of parameters put on you were you given a lot of freedom yeah um there was quite a lot of freedom once it was sort of stuck down that it was going to be about an all uh new sort of core this core group of characters yeah there wasn't really any pushback in terms of me suggesting things and then being like, no, you can't do that. Uh, I think from my experience for writing for other properties, you kind of have a, an instinctive understanding of where there are lines that you should cross and ones that you shouldn't really like tamper with too much. Mm. Um, I think uh, the writers have been calling the setting for the Xavier's Institute range Earth 618. So, uh, that's not like official, but it's it kind of shows how it's very similar to 616, but it's not the same timeline. So that gives us great freedom if we want to just tweak things and have things slightly different to benefit basically just telling the story. Uh, I think Marvel were quite clear in that they didn't want to just rehash mm. the plot lines of comics yeah. uh, in prose form. Uh, they wanted a new story, and they obviously understood that if they want a new story, then it's best to kind of allow a little bit of freedom. Uh, so yeah, I didn't really experience, I didn't sort of push the boat out and then experience pushback um, because I didn't ask for some crazy stuff. Uh, I asked for a few things, which I, I guess we might talk about in the spoiler section, um, which they were totally cool with. So yeah, I think uh, it was it was a good creative um, back and forth. 
I think too, for someone like me who hasn't read all of the comics, like I went into this book, not really knowing anything at all about these characters. So it was cool for me to form like my own relationships with them in this like alternate universe version of them and then go back and say, okay, how does this relate to the comics and look at it? So it's not only like interesting to give me ownership of my relationship with these characters in their own light, but I also is intriguing. It causes me to then want to go back and look and see how it ties into what's already in existence for a story for them. So I really appreciated getting a fresh, a fresh look at who they are as characters and where the story took them. Awesome. That is a relief to hear. <laughs> yeah, it was great. But it also, I think it makes, it gives you a base to start from, right? You have the 616 that you can reference, but yep. then you also have the freedom to be able to bring something new. And like you said, you know, in the same way that a movie shouldn't just be a retelling of the comics, you want to add your own spin. You want to take something and add new elements. But one of the things that I really caught, and it kind of goes back to your initial point of how the characters were assembled, there were a lot of genuine friendships and, and a lot of really unique character voices that came through your writing. Gray Malkin specifically, his voice and his characterization, just, mm -hmm. I loved it. Uh, what was that, that background research like, learning about these characters, getting to know their voices? Yeah, it was, it was quite good fun um, because they are quite sort of different characters. And I think that was what drew me to that as a group because I realized that I could bounce uh, their personalities off each other, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's kind of like a, a classic little uh, literary trope where you've got you know, the main character who's quite sort of outgoing and funny and quirky. And then you have secondary character who's also funny, but in a very deadpan way. Yes. You know, he's, he's like dry, dry humor. Um, he doesn't realize he's being funny, that kind of guy. Uh, so I really like that, that interplay between uh, Grim Alkin and, and all. Cypher was the proper sort of straight up character where, you know, they actually aren't going for the humor, but they're still involved in it. You know, it still revolves around them. Uh, so... Yeah, that sort of thing isn't really something I had experienced writing because a lot of my previous books, uh, because they're more sort of military sci-fi based, they don't really have these quirkier characters going on. They're all sort of, you know, combat men type style action guys, um, which, you know, you can still get a lot of variety in there. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah, the character interactions for this kind of start to drive, drive the story um, a fair bit. Um, I generally think I write more character-based stories than plot-based stories. Um, that's maybe changing a bit because I'm slowly learning how to write plot uh, via writing novels. There's no better way to learn to do something than if by actually doing it. Uh, but yeah, I think, yeah, the characters uh, kind of drove, drove the whole thing for me after a while. It's so funny that you say that about uh, Gray because his lines were the ones that I laughed out loud to, like while reading. You know, I'm like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Got him again, but you didn't even know it was funny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, um, yeah. I think that's uh, probably my favorite character, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I love him. And his story is so interesting. Yeah. Like his backstory is so interesting. That's for later. Um, <laughs> okay, so this, the background is set with a lot of great character mentions, but mostly the characters that have been under the radar in X-Men representation. So how did the popularity of the characters influence your choices to spotlight them in this book? Yeah, it was, I didn't really get too hung up on the idea that, you know, they're fan favorites. Um, I think it's a bit, it can be a bit nerve wracking if you're going into something and you know they're hugely popular 
to then worry, you know, how are people going to react if, you know, I don't get this right or this right, or will they appear to be true to the, the characters that people already understand? So I didn't try to let that put me off too much. Um, I just kind of went for it and hoped that based on the research that I'd done, that the characters would come across as the same ones that people were familiar with. And if that's the case, then hopefully, you know, people are okay with it. Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to get to a situation where, you know, someone's familiar with Anol from all the comics, and then suddenly they read this book that's supposed to be about Anol, and the character doesn't feel like Anol, you know, it doesn't come across as the same. So I feel like if I manage to get that correct, then uh, hopefully people will be happy. <laughs> I think they'll be happy. Yeah. So we're in the new Charles Xavier school, especially at the start. Uh, you know, you've got Pixie, Trance, Match, even Triage, who we, we read and got to know really well in Liberty and Justice for All. And you've talked about kind of connecting with Carrie and, and picking her brain. How did Liberty and Justice for All inform where you started and went? Or was there any kind of intentionality to, to pick up some threads or some ideas or? Yeah, I think it was um, it was meant to be sort of fairly light touch in terms of crossovers. Um, it's fun when you have authors writing in the same setting to try and get basically Easter eggs that mm. sort of flip link between the books without it necessarily like it's not a sequel to Carrie's book. Uh, it's just very much within the same group. Uh, so yeah, I read uh, Carrie's book. I can't actually remember what stage I was at when I read it. I certainly. Uh, I think I had already started at that point. So it wasn't as though, you know, it was just a continuation. Uh, but I did try to put things in triage, which was the most obvious. You know, probably wouldn't have because I had loads of options in terms of just random scenic students to throw into that scene. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to say, hey, if you've read Liberty and Justice for All, there you go. Um, also, getting to use the Blackbird, so the big flyer, um, the X flyer. Uh, so that was in Liberty and Justice for All. Uh, so I make sure I kind of read how it functions uh, in, in Carrie's book. So yeah, it's not sort of like a really super close collaboration where we're trying to make sure that everything sort of fits in together. Uh, but there was there was crossover, as there should be. Yeah, I think that those, those small touch points of, you know, you, you recognize something or, uh, and especially to your point about the, the X-Jet, you know, if it was completely different and, and was intent to be in the same world, people might be like, hey, what's going on? But, you know, to have some intentionality to have a little bit of connection, but not not force yourself into doing something that was not the voice of what you're trying to go for. So, okay, listener, friends, this isn't technically a spoiler because it's on the back of the book, but just here's your warning. So something that happens pretty uh, early on in the book is the purifiers and their rally that's led by the prophet Exodus. So he is, you know, a pretty important character in the story. And we were just hoping you could tell us a little bit about him as a character and where he came from. Yeah. Um, first off, I wanted a really cool, cheesy supervillain name. Yeah. So yes. Exodus. You know, it's got to be that. Like, yeah. Uh, I don't actually... There is an Exodus spelled correctly with an E in the X-Men universe, but somehow I don't think anyone's tried an Exodus yet. So uh, that was initially where he came from. I was like, I need to use this name. I need to come up with a character for this name. Beyond that, I think it, it kind of came out of the fact that I wanted the purifiers more generally as like the foot soldier villains. Um, so in my mind, they're kind of like orcs in a fancy saying, you know, they're, 
They're the generic bad guys, and you need loads of them because you need to have big fight scenes and action scenes, and they need to be quite menacing and all that sort of stuff. So they ticked a box in terms of who are the bad guys going to be in this story. Uh, so because I was using the purifiers, I then said, well, they need a boss purifier. Uh, obviously, we have Stryker is the more traditional purifier villain, but uh, I kind of didn't want to have him in there because I kind of felt he was too much of a big name. Mm. And I didn't want him to conflict with other things that I can't talk about until we get to the spoiler section. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I kind of wanted a boss purifier who I could kind of do whatever I wanted with because he's not a named character in terms of the, the Marvel setting. I mean, I guess he is now technically in a way. But, uh, you know, yeah. well, it's not original to uh, the right. setting. So uh, that's where Exodus comes from. That's cool. Yeah. And just the idea, I mean, we had read God Loves Man Kills a couple months ago, and that was her first time. It's one of my favorite yeah. stories. And it really just speaks to the terrifyingness of that as a, as a subset of the Marvel Universe. The fact that, you know, using this influence to really guide this anti-mutant hysteria and, and in a very violent way. And so we're, we're looking at the, the purifier cult as this backdrop. And, and you mentioned Stryker and Exodus feels like Stryker, but more brazen, more like out there and, and really, uh, really commanding a very blatant message. Did Stryker influence the creation of the character or was that kind of a, kind of a how do I build off of or twist this? Yeah, I, I didn't really want it to be just sort of blatantly a disposable striker. Um, so yeah, he's kind of, he is more bullish. Uh, he's less subtle uh, at times. Uh, he's, yeah, he's, he's just out there and yeah, I don't know what more to say about him really. He was an interesting character to try and, because there's a few scenes where they're from his perspective, his point of view. Um, and I wanted to show that at times there's, a lot of thought gone into being such a horrible person, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the purifiers can be stereotyped quite easily as just these lunatics and, you know, they just go around believing all these crazy stories about mutants being evil. But uh, if you look at the leadership of an organization like that, it is being driven by intelligent people who are nevertheless also still fanatics and that's what makes them dangerous. So, uh, yeah, I guess trying to get, get across the point that, uh, Sometimes it's easy to dismiss something as, oh, they're just crazy. Uh, but then that kind of means that people don't take them as seriously or the danger, the threat they pose as seriously. So uh, yeah, I'm rambling now about Exodus. There we go. I love it. I'm, in, I'm like, I'm tuned in. Um, <laughs> okay, so Anol, he's pretty fleshed out in your story. And it's interesting because he has a different mutant experience. So um can you just talk a little bit about your relationship with him as a character and his parents being so port supportive and loving and like uh, appreciative of his coming out as a mutant and yeah. his coming out yeah, as a it, gay man. Exactly. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed one of the early things I liked about this character was that he's so different from many of the other X-Men because he has a happy origin story. Mm -hmm. well, the X-Men are all about doom and gloom origin stories. Uh, and he comes from a rural town in Illinois and he's got loving family, uh, loving parents, a loving community. He's accepted uh, both as a mutant and when he comes out. And I just found that quite refreshing really. And importantly, then allowed me to play off his relationship with Graham Malkin, who's literally the polar opposite of that experience, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really important. 
Um, so yeah, kind of having him as a character who grows up in this safe environment and then leaves it, it's kind of the classic young hero's journey. He leaves it, goes off to, in this case, school, and via school, he realizes that actually the world outside of what he's grown up knowing uh, is a lot less tolerant and can be a lot sort of more harsh and a scary place, more or less. So in a way, this story is part of his growing up story in so much as he realizes uh, that other people don't have it as good as he did mm. uh, and also sort of understands from a, an adult perspective the difficulty his parents potentially faced in shielding him uh, from all the nastiness that's out there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and and just speaks to to his experience, but also just the the strength that his parents tried to instill with him of being being a good person and and not being weighed down by all this hatred that is around the mutant people. Uh, so one thing that stuck out to me about Anol, he comments early on about the anxiety of traveling, the reality of his visible mutation. And what does that mean to, to him as a character and some of the other characters in the story, the, the weight that that carries and how, you know, that, that really is a constant fear that they're going through. Yeah, it's, there's a contrast between, you know, characters that can't turn off their mutant abilities in a sense or can't hide it and ones that can. I mean, Anol is literally green. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, he's, he's not hiding that. Yeah, I think it, it's something that he wouldn't have had to think about growing up as much because again, he had that uh, sort of very protective environment, that safe environment where it wasn't so much an issue. And now, now that he's left and he's coming back, he understands more acutely that people look at him different because his literal physicality uh, is, brings that about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so now all three of these main characters, Anol, Gray Malkin, Cypher, they all have very different but somewhat similar skill sets in the sense that they can disappear and hide themselves. Uh, how does that contrast with their physical mutations, especially of Anol and, and Gray? And I just, I thought it was interesting that, you know, Cypher especially having the ability to fully disappear but not really having a physical mutation. Just this contrast of they're all approaching a, a, a unique power set but in different ways. Yeah, that genuinely was just coincidence. <laughs> um, so yeah, I didn't set out to build like the super sneaky team uh, initially. I then just realized, you know, as I was writing, oh, they're all really good at sort of hiding and sneaking around and getting stuff done without being more in your face the way a lot of the X-Men were more used to. You know, they have over offensive combat-based powers, super strength, all that sort of stuff. Whereas these guys um, kind of had to think of it uh, in order to get things done. Yeah, I think that although, as you say, they're all based on this um, ability to be covert, uh, the way they go about it is very different. So uh, and all the, the shape-shifting or the um, chameleon ability that he has is kind of, initially I would call it going invisible in the writing when I was writing it, and my editor said, well, he's not actually invisible, is he? He's just melding. Yeah. Um, so it's not as potent necessarily as Cypher's abilities, uh, which were a bit of a struggle to write at first because she's kind of, in a way, she's overpowered in terms of her abilities. She can literally go invisible, phase through stuff. She can't be heard. She's undetectable. Um, there isn't really sort of a, an exertion to that either. So she can kind of just keep doing it indefinitely. Um, so I'm like, well, you know, where does that character find their struggle? You know, at what point are they going to be under physical threat? 
Uh, I think towards the end, we discover, hopefully without being too spoilery, that the threat for her is not so much that she might suffer or die, it's that the ones that she's attached to might, because mm-hmm. they don't have these powers that she does. Uh, so that's her weakness, basically. Uh, and with Grim Alkin, yeah, I just kind of like the fact that someone that didn't know him would kind of think he was almost a villain-type character because his abilities are kind of spooky. Yeah. You know, I, I love the idea that he uh, becomes more powerful in the darkness. And in the light, it kind of fades away. So uh, especially from the perspective of, like, purifiers, that sounds like some sort of demon. You know, it's, it's potentially terrifying. But then Grey Malkin as a person is lovely, more or less. Yeah. So uh, it, it's another fun way to just kind of bring out the whole concept that the X-Men are stigmatized for their abilities when their abilities have no bearing necessarily on who they are as people. Yeah, especially Gray Malkin as a character. So my favorite X-Men is Nightcrawler, who is often demonized by the way he looks, right? And, and is genuinely the nicest guy ever. And I feel like that contrast really provides a lot of things to talk about in how we, we judge on sight versus getting to know the character beneath. And I, I've, I'm really glad that you brought up that point about Cypher and like what comes to be her struggle because later in the book, when we got to that moment, when she basically has an out, like she could just get away easily when everyone else is in this terrible danger and she chooses not to because she cares about the people that she's with. And it's the way that she phrases it is so beautifully written. It's such a moment of like, it happens really quickly, but you really get this deeper connection to her outward struggle in the world and like where she feels like she fits in and that she's had enough. Like she's had enough of being the one who can just get away. She wants to change who she is and how she handles situations. Um, So I thought that was a really great moment in the book because you get to just get a little bit deeper into who she is as a person. And it happens in this like crazy moment. So you're, you know, there's a lot going on, but for just that second, we get to like zoom in on her. And I really love that moment. So I'm glad you brought that up. And it wasn't too spoilery. They don't know what the heck we're talking about. (laughs) Okay, so we talked a little bit about Anul's family and how supportive they are but the community that he grew up in is also really supportive of him and there's some really great moments between the community as a whole and the purifiers and so I just wanted to know why you felt like that juxtaposition of those two groups was important to include in the story. Yeah I think it, it was important in so much as it would have been a bit easier to have the Anol backstory being he has loving parents, you know, which is relatively unusual in the X-Men universe, but it's not, you know, impossible to conceive of. Uh, but then to say that actually the community he grew up in is really close-knit, it's really sort of tight and it's healthy for, for him growing up as a kid. Uh, I thought that added something nice to it. And then it's just a natural opposition when you see the purifiers who are based on stirring up uh, mistrust and hatred and exploiting dividing communities. Uh, he kind of sees a bit of that when he uh, goes back, should be too spoilery, when he goes back home and he realizes that maybe the community is a little bit more divided than when he remembers, you know, because the, the purifiers have been stirring up so much discord and hatred that there are some cracks starting to appear uh, kind of, giving evidence to the fact that uh, even the best or the most tightly knitted community can can struggle in times of stress. 
so yeah, I just enjoyed the idea that ultimately the people who stand between him and the people that want him dead uh, are the friends and family he grew up with, uh, despite the fact that they themselves don't have mutant powers, um, aren't really equipped to go toe to toe with this uh, vicious external mob. Uh, but they still choose to do so because uh, he's he's a part of them. He's you know he's one of them. That's awesome. So speaking about the juxtapositions and in terms of support, I, the other thing that we were talking about and just the difference between Anol and Gray Malkin in terms of their family support. What was it like to explore that contrast? You know that that just very polar opposites of how they were received by their families. Yeah, I thought that was another thing that really drew me to include both those characters side by side. Um, in the comics, uh, one of my favorite and all scenes is when he just has a chat with Grim Alkin. Um, I think it's at the Golden Gate Bridge. They're overlooking it. And they just kind of talk about, you know, Grey talks about uh, how difficult it is to come out and how he was treated by his family. Um, and for Anol to grasp that might seem very difficult because, you know, his family were totally accepting of, of him at the time. So, I mean, just the idea of those totally opposite characters coming together to share that moment and for an old to be able to help Gray through that. Um, yeah, it was, it was something that I kind of wanted to run as a thread through the story. Um, and then it kind of starts to flip a little bit because we have uh, Gray Malkin is the one that kind of has to come and rescue an old in a way um, with Cypher. Uh, again, spoilers. But, uh, <laughs> It's kind of like a broad spoiler, it's not a specific one. Yeah. So yeah, having the characters being able to exchange roles in that sense and just show how much they're both there for each other, uh, I thought that was, hopefully that was good character development. Yeah. And it really ties into the message of having a found family and that the, the Institute is a family and the teams that form are families. And so is there anything in particular that really made you want to include that so strongly in so many sections of the book? I guess I just felt as though it was one of the core messages of the X-Men, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a franchise. Um, it's one of the classic things that I wanted to get to. It's kind of why I included the purifiers as well, because to me, they are the core enemy or a core enemy because they represent uh, this anti-mutant hatred uh, that they all have to struggle against. So yeah, the idea that uh, you don't necessarily, if you have a family that rejects you, that isn't the end of the world. Uh, that there is, you can build a family uh, when you find people that are willing to support and uh, assist you through through your struggles. So yeah, I just I just felt that, that was such a key message from the X Men as a whole that it was something I guess I wanted to push in the novel. That's great. It's just really beautiful how it's in so many different aspects of the book. Like it's it's in there, but it's not just, hey, the, the school is your found family. Like there's yeah. the community, there's the team, there's the in individual friendships. It just keeps coming up. So I love the way that you infused it into the individual character relationships and then the overall sort of message of the book itself. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it was, I think family was the, the keyword that we used after we kind of drawn the, the pitch together and we were looking at, well, what is the theme of this book? You know, what is the core message that's going to drive through it at the end? And uh, yeah, it was the word family, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, especially in between the characters and, and finding that home 
in each other's safety and in each other's mm. community uh, that, that really came through in, in the way that they connected with each other. Uh, you know, speaking about at the, at the school and in the X-Men, uh, and then and then we're gonna move into spoilery territory because I feel like we're all like, ah, but I don't want to get too spoilery. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, what was it like getting to write Cyclops as a character in a very particular role and and time in the character's arc as the the principal of this school? Oh yeah, it was really awesome. Um, it was also fairly intimidating because he is by a fair stretch sort of the most well known and popular. Um, X-Men character in the book. So that was where I was really like, oh, wow, I'm writing, you know, this is the guy I grew up watching on TV, you know, and features in so many films, you know, he's a big, it's a genuine big name. Uh, and I think I kind of relieved the stress of that on myself by focusing on the fact that, as you say, he's, this is a specific point in time where he's kind of not the cipher that most people are more familiar with. He's really taken on a lot of responsibility He's no longer just a part of this go get an X-Men team. He's now literally, you know, headmaster Summers. So then exploring how he tried to juggle his older instincts of being a more action-based X-Man who would, you know, fight the threats head on. He can't do that anymore because he has to stay in school and make sure that all of these wayward kids, um, some of whom don't even respect him, are safe. Um, it's It's clearly something that he takes very seriously you know it's, he's the sort of character that wouldn't stint um, from his duty in these sorts of things so when I kind of got my head around Cyclops as the parent in a way the head teacher uh, with a lot of responsibilities then I felt it just kind of clicked a bit a bit more easily that's cool it, it just it was something different of Cyclops that I've, I've known a little bit through the comics but just to see him in that role we're going to talk a little bit more about Cyclops, but we're going to give you a fair warning, listeners, that this is, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the, the content of the book. So if you'd like to pause, pause and read, check it out wherever you get your books. Or if you already read the book, great work. Yeah. Here we go. So in speaking about Cyclops, there are moments like he clearly knows what's going on with these kids the entire time. Like he knows when they're sneaking out. He knows when they're up to no good, right? What do, what can you say about the times when he's willing to let things slide and not really go after them and, you know, scold them for what they're doing and then the times when he's like enough is enough, go to your room. Yeah, I think I mean, that's the sort of balance that I think the best teachers or maybe the best parents kind of hit you know um i guess maybe it becomes instinctive instinctive if you do it long enough uh, yeah he knows he can't sort of punish every infraction he knows that mutant kids are going to be mutant kids when it comes to specifically uh, the situation that arises with the null he realizes that he also can't be just this perfect guardian who is going to make sure that everyone is okay there comes a time where he has to relinquish a bit of the control he realizes that he can't necessarily look after one group while making sure the school is safe and functioning. So that's the point where he just kind of says, you got to do what you got to do. And um, I suppose that's the ultimate expression of him stepping back at times and letting people get away with things. Because, um, yeah, I guess in the background, he's kind of often viewed as quite a strict character. But he's, you know, at this point, he's developed a bit because he's had this experience of basically running a school family type thing uh, where you can't just be an absolute stickler all the time or else you'd go insane. 
Yeah, got to be the cool dad sometimes. And yeah. also, you gotta you gotta be like, okay. And I think he even mentions it at some point when he's like, well, I would have done the same. Yeah. Like, I can't hold you to the standards that I wouldn't have hold, held myself to. Like, if my family was kidnapped, I wouldn't be just chilling here waiting for someone else to take care of it. I'd be doing it myself. So exactly. Yeah. Now, there's a there's a point. Uh, kind of in the first handful of chapters after after Enola's gone home where there's an attack on the Borkowski house and you know from this point on there's there's a heightened tension in the novel that I really felt and I don't know if maybe this was drawing on some of your past work and kind of this this idea of a little bit more militaristic but what was it like maintaining that that pace and finding new twists in the narrative to, to keep you going and keep that heightened narrative tension yeah, I think um, the plot sort of escalates kind of like a, a rock rolling down hillside kind of effect, um, which generally is what you want from, from a narrative. But once the actual attack is made on um, his home, like his physical home, um, that's when, you know, you're, you're not Gansas anymore type, type moment um, where he really faces up to the fact that he's got to take action uh, and no one else is going to come and save him necessarily within reason you know maybe i'm gonna save him literally but his family you know it's up to him if he wants to get his family back uh yeah i think i mean it was mapped out i i can't do what a lot of great authors do and just kind of write it as i go along because it will just be a disaster if i try and do that so i kind of knew um like the narrative points that i needed to hit uh, as the story shifted yeah it just i guess it rolled pretty well i don't think uh, when it came to editing it, there weren't sort of major section rewrites. So I think the, the framework that was built up to, to wrap the story around uh, kind of held together throughout, thankfully. I'm going off script. Oh. I'm asking a question that's not written down because it, it came to my mind when we were talking about it a little bit earlier and I just want to ask it or I want to talk about it. So when we were talking before about the community and this idea that they've the community has evolved over the time of him being a child and that the influence of the purifiers has kind of changed how some people see things but there's this really amazing scene where um he goes to the coffee shop to to use the phone and that him and and the the woman behind the counter they're like you know, speaking in code about him using the phone and then the purifiers come in and it's like, oh snap, what's going to happen? And like, as a reader, you're on the edge of your seat saying like, are these people going to expose him and say, he's over there? Or are they going to keep hiding him? And so like, in that moment, like, what was it, what was it like writing that particular scene? Uh, I did enjoy writing that scene. Uh, it's kind of split 50-50. So I enjoyed the aspect that you mentioned that it comes down to, are the townsfolk going to give him up? Because um, that's kind of just bringing it to a point. I've talked about how in the novel, how um, you know they're a community and they stick together, but when it comes down to it, and literally there are almost lives at stake here, are they still going to look out for him? Um, the other half of writing that was kind of just a classic homage to, I don't know, I feel like there's loads of those sorts of scenes in, in action films or you know spy thrillers and stuff where the main character is you know gonna make a phone call somewhere public and then the bad guys right next to them and they're like they're gonna get caught um so it was just kind of fun to do that basically that trope uh in that scene so yeah it was it was kind of a combo of that also i just wanted to have uh someone get thrown through a window by rock yes. slide again spoilers but yeah you gotta <laughs> have someone great. get thrown through a window why not yeah. 
Yes. Especially at that point where, like, from that point on, I was just like, oh, God, uh, I'm, re I'm reading yeah. the book. Turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. <laughs> Another thing that was really great is I personally really enjoy books that shift perspective. And you kind of mentioned it in the first part of the interview, but there's a moment where all of a sudden, like this book is being told mostly about Anul and his perspective and his point of view of what's happening. And then all of a sudden a chapter starts and we're here getting the story from Exodus's point of view. And I really appreciated that and, and the way that it changed the pacing of the book at that point. So what was the, the motivation behind waiting until halfway through the book to really get that change in perspective happening yeah so the realistic answer to that one is a bit more of a lucky break um so i didn't really realize what i'd done in so much as the first half is very anole centric and then the second half is very fractured in terms of viewpoints until my editor was like huh he's suddenly getting a lot of new viewpoints here like halfway through but we looked at it and they said well actually you know it works i think so you know it's not something that we're going to feel as though we need to change or, or review so in that sense, I was fortunate. I generally enjoy writing stuff from multiple perspectives. Uh, I think when I was a kid, I read uh, Lord of the Rings, as a lot of us do. And one of the things that struck me, uh, I think it was 11 at the time, was the way um, after the journey, the fellowship really kicks off and they become split. It will bounce from you know, Frodo and Sam to Merry Pippin to Aragorn, um, and it will take chapters by chapter. And I don't know, I guess that kind of just stuck with me. And I think it's also, it's good to be able to show characters looking at other characters who then look at other characters, you know, from the same different perspectives, looking at the same thing. So we can see how they develop uh, their own sort of worldview. Uh, so hopefully all the characters don't feel like the same person, just looking at things separately. The reason I think there was so much a no at the start was because I really wanted to get comfortable with that character. And I want the reader to invest in that character as the main character. But yeah, when it came to the action, which is, you know, the second half is much more action based than the first half. Uh, it sort of benefited from having a lot of different perspectives, just mixing it up, really keeping it fresh. And it also, I know you're, you said it wasn't like an intentional thing, but I think it really speaks to this idea that in the beginning, Anol feels really alone in this quest for what he's doing and, and his journey. And then all of a sudden he has these people who are on his side, but all, I mean, we also hear from the bad guy perspective, but it's like, oh, they're, you know, you're first reading the book and you're like, he's alone. This is his story. And then it becomes the story of all these other people and really shows like how all of these other perspectives and all these other personalities interweave. And I just, I loved it. I was like, reading and I think I out loud was like "Ooh, a different perspective so I really appreciated that as a reader to to give that like the next level build of the story that's really amazing and you've made it sound like it was wonderful and planned and <laughs> that was you know from the heart but it was just kind of lucky but if that's how it ended up then I'm really glad that uh, that you took that from it because yeah you know, that's great. <laughs> you can say it was intentional. Now. Yeah, you that's yours now. Take it and run with it. There so, you go. And, and to your point earlier about uh, really identifying with Anola at the beginning, I feel like that brought you into his story, into mm -hmm. this story, and then really expanded the world. And, hey, there's a lot bigger of a story going on here. Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was this idea of graduating to the X-Men. 
and how Rockslide is kind of, he was a student, but now he's moved on to this. Why was that important to include as part of the lives of these students that they're living? You know, I, I saw that that as kind of a, a next step that really underscores this as a coming of age story for all of them. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times when you have uh, teenage dramas, high school dramas, all that sort of stuff, it kind of feels as though they live in this world where they're never going to graduate. Um, and it seems as though like so much happens to them uh, in this period and they never actually come to, you know, the fruition or they never really think about what's going to happen when it ends. So I thought it was good to kind of have the proximity of that for an old when, you know, his buddy um, Rockslide is, is heading off or has headed off even. Uh, it was also part of kind of taking the safety net away from him um, initially because if he'd still been, you know, roommates and best buds with Rockslides, then the story would have been a bit simpler for him because he probably could have convinced him immediately to go off with him and, uh, you know, the bad stuff might not have been quite as bad. But when he's kind of been left behind in a sense by his best friends, then that creates more character interactions and tensions that are going to play up later in the story. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of just framing him and showing that there is going to be life beyond the Institute, um, I felt was important for him as a character. Amazing. Okay. So something I found really interesting about Exodus is that he has this belief, right? He has this sword and this belief that he was uh, basically imbued with a power that gives him the right to, to do this. Like he has this purpose. He has this extra power, so to speak. But then he believes that the mutants are demons and they're evil because they have these powers. So just 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 talk about that just talk about why <laughs> he, he's better than them but he has a power that no one else has right yeah um he kind of in my mind i kind of saw him as uh like so one of the medieval knights like knight mm -hmm. templar or hospitaller or something like that you know he sees himself as a godly warrior monk uh more or less and he views the mutants literally as almost literally as sort of demonic entities so he's kind of just developed this persona around himself that he is uh, basically a holy knight and it's his duty to uh, save the world from these evil creatures as he sees them. Obviously, that's pretty delusional. But uh, <laughs> like I said before with him, hopefully he displays sort of the, the threat. You know, if you heard about a guy that thinks he's a medieval knight, you probably go, oh, well, he's just crazy. He's, you know, he doesn't actually sound like something threatening. You know, he's just a mad guy. Um, but when you see Exodus in action and, uh, you know, he has charisma that he can use to exert control um, over the other purifiers, uh, kind of launches this crusade, essentially, as he would view it. Um, the other main thing, the reason for the sword is I wanted him to, um, massive spoilers, chop an old arm off. So uh, that was the reason for the sword. <laughs> Besides the, like, the, the obvious imagery with a knight. I love the sword and how, like, the sword is like almost like his source of power. Like yeah. when he gets his sword, he's like, I'm ready with my sword. I can fight and, their power with my and power. And then Grey destroys. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, spoilers, we told you. We're in the spoiler section. It's the spoiler You've got your section. warning. Uh, so you did mention the fact that Anul loses his arm, which is a part that comes from the comics at a, at a different time. And I thought that that really speaks to an interesting transformation that he goes through you know he he is destroyed mentally when after he after he loses that arm 
talk about that as a as a as part of his art, as part of Anol's realization that not only is that not the end of his journey, but that might even be part of a, a revitalization of his cause and, and why he must go further in what he's doing. Yeah, so the initial idea behind getting to write the arm getting chopped off was I just kind of wanted to be the one that chopped his arm off. As you say, it, it exists um, previously in, in the comics, it happens at a different time. So that was one of the small changes that, you know, I asked Marvel, can I please be the one to chop his arm off in this setting um, instead? And they're like, yeah, go for it. Like, <laughs> don't let that stop you. So, yeah, I feel as though it's in terms of the actual character um, or the, the image of the character, it's iconic, you know, the big arm, um, the big lizard arm. Uh, so I want it to be the one that kind of bridged that gap and use it. I guess it's a fairly obvious metaphor for, you know, he was someone different before this. And initially when it happens to him, as you say, he's extremely distraught. Um, he thinks it's basically the end of him as an effective, uh, you know, like a mutant X-Men. Uh, and then he realizes that actually no, his abilities include growing limbs back. So uh, it's not all as bad as it sounds initially. Yeah, it was, it was just one of those moments that I felt it shows the character coming to terms with loss and then realizing, as you say, that actually it's not all over yet and that he still, still has a lot to give. I also got a bunch of notes from the editor as I was doing that saying he's not freaked off enough about the fact he's lost his arm. Um, I think I was struggling because at that point it was all kind of really coming together in terms of plot. And I was so busy sort of pushing ahead with writing everything that was happening. I needed to go back and internalize, you know, if I got my arm chopped off, I'd be pretty horrified. So I needed more of him being like, oh my God, my arm isn't there anymore um, until it is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, uh... His, his main reaction was, I could eat more pizza, <laughs> which yeah. I would totally do. <laughs> yeah, I loved, the, I loved the whole, like, listen, I'm growing an arm. I need pizza constantly, like feed, feed me. me constantly. That was a really nice break of a human moment, you know, when we have this craziness happening and the story is building and the tension is building, but I need to regrow my arm and I need pizza to do it. Exactly. We would all take advantage of that moment, wouldn't we? Yeah, if I had an excuse to eat multiple pizzas a day, I'm on it. Yeah. Okay, clearly I love Exodus. Okay, so I have another Exodus question. Exodus and Loeb, they have a very uh, interesting relationship because their motives are completely the opposite. And you don't find that out until later, like what really Loeb is up to. But how how was it constructing that relationship and this idea of like, does Exodus ever really find out what the purpose behind him doing all this work for someone else is? Like this guy who's funding his project or funding his army is essentially using him for the complete opposite reason. Like Exodus is like, I'm, a, I'm out to destroy the mutants. And he's like, secretly, I want to be a mutant. How does that, yeah. how does that yeah, come out? It comes from a place of they both think the other one is naive, I think. Mm. Um, and you can debate which one is the more naive. Uh, yeah, certainly Loeb is taking Exodus for a bit of a ride in so much as, yeah, uh, their goals are actually not the same at all. But Exodus is very much, he has like a practical side despite the fanaticism. Uh, like he understands that if his crusade is to be successful, he needs financial backing. Uh, he needs people in, you know, high places, people in industry, stuff like that. Uh, Loeb can bring that to the table. And I think 
like I said, they both think the other one is probably a bit naive. They also probably both think that the other one can be disposed of when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of playing each other. Uh, and I think they, they both kind of realize that in a sense, but they're okay with it because short term, they're being pretty successful. Um, you know, they're achieving things that they probably wouldn't be able to achieve otherwise. Um, Lobe needs muscle and uh, Exodus needs money. So it's uh, sort of a, a supply that they can exchange. And uh, even if they might not see eye to eye, it's a good question actually as to how much Exodus knows. I don't think I actually really mapped that out. Um, but I think instinctively, and knowing the character, he probably actually has a pretty good idea. He just thinks that when the time comes, he can be, you know, he can deal with that when it, it needs dealt with. Right, because he has his sword and his power. Exactly. So he can shoot exactly. them all down. Exactly. <laughs> Do you have a favorite scene or a favorite moment in the story? That's a tough one. Uh, in terms of the one that just felt the most natural to write, it was actually the exchange between Cypher and Cyclops uh, in the training. Yeah, mm. danger room. Yeah. I don't know really why, it just, the characters just seemed to sort of flow in terms of what they were thinking, what they were doing. I think it exposed a lot of what drives both Cypher and Cyclops separately, uh, where they come to this kind of accord. Uh, and we can see, we can see behind the mask for Cyclops in terms of uh, he has all these doubts and fears and the fact that he's not able to actually go out and rescue and all, even though he kind of wants to. Uh, and he comes to terms with the fact that he can't save everyone. So it's up to them to save each other, in a sense. Um, so yeah, that just kind of chimes. Uh, the action scenes were pretty fun. The bridge scene mm. um, I enjoyed because it was just kind of crazy. Uh, it was another one where I literally just went, uh, well, actually I saw the novel cover uh, for Liberty and Justice for All. Um, and I knew that the style was going to be similar. So you have the main characters clustered, classic superhero pose. And in the background, you have a couple of landmarks from the book. And I was like, oh, there's going to be like landmarks. What's a cool landmark? I don't know, Brooklyn Bridge. So <laughs> I mean, it, it was no more complex than that when it came to like picking, picking a setting. So yeah, I enjoyed the, the kind of the jewel that they had uh, there. Uh, yeah, and kind of the finale where the spoilers the church is kind of falling apart around them um, and they all just kind of face up to the fact that they probably won't get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that bridge scene too. And I yeah. feel like that bridge scene wouldn't make for an epic movie scene. Like the way it's described, just like extras, just like coming out of the fire and just like, <laughs> it's so good. And it's so, it's so interesting too, to have read it and, to not quite know that his arm was chopped off when you first get in that moment. Right. Like I was reading going, wait, wait, well, ha, ha, how did what he happened? just fall off this bridge? What's going on? He was just like, it is grips. What's, go- how did this happen? And then having that be like a little bit slower of a reveal was really, I don't know. I love, I love books. <laughs> like, I just love books. They just make little worlds inside your brain. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard, you know, I've been hearing through the greatness of the internet, how like different people's brains work and how they read differently and they don't hear words in their head or things the same way. So I wonder what reading books is like for those people. Um, (laughs) But for me, I really loved that moment. And in the church, like when everything's falling down on top of them, 
you can really feel it. Like you really see it in your brain, the way that you write it and the way that it's described. And I also really love the the callbacks to certain things. Like in that moment, you know, you, you forget for a second because of everything that's going on, like Gray's backstory. And then all of a sudden when he's covered from the building falling down, like this was his idea. And then the building falls on top of him and instantly he's brought back to being buried alive. And you're like, whoa, oh yeah, that's a thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean. Amazing. Thank you. That means a lot. You know, there's nothing better for a writer than to hear someone like their stuff. So yeah, um, it's interesting what you're saying about reading and how, you know, people read books differently. So I think something I realized quite early on as a writer that you can't over describe like it's it's a temptation to sort of try and like paint a perfect picture and uh, just try and build everything up in terms of description but actually what you do when you read is you get a prompt and then you do it in your head uh, it just depends how sort of effective the prompt is uh, in terms of description so you know if a character enters a new uh, building or a new room you don't say every single thing in that room you just kind of throw in a few things and then you trust that the reader will take their life experience and, you know, stuff that they're familiar with and they kind of construct it themselves without realizing it. So really, you're the one who's doing the writing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Ooh, like a little collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Filling in the blanks. Like that, when you said that, that just made me think about the scene where Anul's sneaking into the office building and he like starts blending in with the filing cabinet and they're like, I think I just saw something there. And like yeah. that, that is a scene that I was like full on picturing in my mind. Like, what does he look like when he's camouflaged? Like, is it, is it shimmery? Is it bumpy? Is it just, does he just blend in? Like created so many questions in my mind that if I was reading a comic, I'd be able to see how the, yeah. the uh, artist in the comic depicts it. But in my mind, it's my own world. Exactly. Do whatever you want. <laughs> cool. Well, so, those are all of our questions. Anything else that you want to say about the book or anything else that you'd like to, uh, anything that you're working on currently that you can talk about or is things under wraps or? Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, glad you enjoyed it, but you know, it really means a lot to not only hear that someone enjoyed it, but then to speak sort of so eloquently about why they enjoyed it. You know, it's, oh, thank you. I don't actually get that, that often as a writer, so I appreciate that. In terms of what I'm working on, as of yesterday, um, Aconite released uh, like autumns or books for the rest of the year, so I can talk about some stuff. Uh, so I'm doing uh, a different fantasy novel, which maybe is not you know the genre people are watching this or into. However, uh, there will be a anthology of Xavier's Institute short stories coming out at some point this year, and I've got a story in it. And I don't really know if I can say anything more about it, bar that, but uh, it features some characters that, you know, you might have just read about. So, yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah so that, that's fun. Um, it's just a short story. It's about 10,000 words. But, yeah, there's going to be some pretty, pretty funky stories in, in that anthology. So one to watch out for, I guess, if you're into that sort of stuff. <laughs> cool. Cool. You mentioned at the beginning... Oh, if I could write a story. So like, if you could write a story about any, anything Marvel, let's not even say that it's X-Men related, just open it up to anything Marvel. If you could write one of these books about anyone in the Marvel universe, who would it be? Uh, it's a difficult question. Um, like I said, probably, probably Laura, X-23. 
because then I could also cameo a fair bit of Wolverine uh, mm. because like secretly, you know, I want to write about Wolverine. I enjoyed the scene uh, in First Team where the little kids come up to um, Anol in his hometown and they're like, tell us about Wolverine. And he's like, Wolverine, I can like, <laughs> I can change colors. Watch me instead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, to, to get to write one of those like seriously core X-Men characters um, to just even like, just say, you know, come up with sentences that they're speaking, which just be, it's mind blowing for a fan. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Sounds like it would fit in the uh, heroines line. I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it could be a thing. I don't know. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Oh, well, fingers crossed, I guess. Yeah. We'll cross them. Thank you so, so much for taking time to talk to us today. All of our listeners, make sure you check out First, First team, team if you haven't already. And until next time, old friend. Charles! Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ex-Wife Podcast. Be sure to leave us a review and tell your friends. The Ex-Wife Podcast is produced in Providence, Rhode Island by Alicia and Justin. Our music is by Quan.